Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. So let's meet Dr. Jean-Michel Glachon, the dynamic energy economist who is shaking the regulations governing the industry. As a professor at Florence School of Regulation, he's been spearheading research, training courses, and policy dialogues since 2008. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, Dr. Glachon. Jean-Michel is also the president of the International Association for Energy Economics and the vice president of the French Association for Energy Economics. The Jean-Michel impact is unlimited to the academic world. He has also been an advisor to the European Commission and the French Energy Regulatory Commission, the CRE. His contribution to the profession of energy economics have been recognized with the IAEE Career Award back in 2018. With over 170 articles, working papers, books, and reports under his belt, Jean-Michel is a prolific author and a Twitter star. Be sure to check his profile to get insight on upcoming changes in energy policies and regulations. So if you're interested in the cutting-edge developments in energy economics and governance, stay with us for this new episode of Energetic. Jean-Michel, welcome. Welcome, welcome. The most important is that I believe that energy economics are useful. And I believe that uh, you can spend your life uh, understanding it and sharing it. It is worth the pain. <laughs> so, Jean-Michel, you have a very long career and a lot of uh, insights to share with us today. So how would you describe the evolution of energy economics and also this regulation part from the start of your career to the present day? And what have been the most, let's say, significant changes that you have observed? Yeah, you have to know that I master on electricity. I tried gas, but I stopped gas to give it to a lady. So I master only electricity, which is a very small part of energy, because electricity is mainly a secondary energy. We take something and we transform that thing into electricity. This none, I will speak only about electricity, Changes are being unbelievable. When I was under 40, I strongly believed that electricity was a monopoly better performed by state companies or strongly regulated private companies like in the US. And when the Brits claimed to create a wholesale market, it made me laugh And I thought, I will become famous, at least in Europe, by showing that it is impossible and that their market will crash immediately. So I started to work on it. It has been difficult because in France, nobody was able to help me. So I went to UK. And after six, eight months of work, I, all of a sudden, I understood that they were creating a wholesale electricity market and it can work. Oof. Then I thought, well, only the Brits will do. And then inside the EU, Commission started to push, saying, if the, if the Brits can do, why not in the EU? 
Then I thought, boy, the EU, we cannot do, it's too big. We have too many countries, too many governments involved. The European Parliament is made of so many different people. And it's true, it took more than 10 years to do something really significant. But then we did it. And then I, I learned that with digitalization, many things impossible in the former century were becoming possible. Are they good? It's something else. Are they better? It's also something else, but they are possible. And then when the Brits said, we are going to have a retail market, instead of saying it's impossible, I started to think how to do retail market. And I, I rapidly saw that, yeah, it's doable again with a second layer of digitalization we can do. And at a point, the debate in Europe was not anymore about can we do. The debate was, can we destroy all the past, which is in France, but many other countries, universal access to electricity and uh, affordability of electricity for certain classes of consumers? Will we destroy this? And then the fight started. And to my own surprise, the fight has been won by people willing to protect consumers and particularly to serve what we call today vulnerable consumers. But we may also call them poor people unable to pay the full market cost. And this was for me a delight because uh, I am myself for a very popular family. I, I know well that my ancestors were extremely poor, my grand-grandmothers, grand-grandfathers were extremely poor. My grandparents were born poor. My father were, was born very poor too. And uh, I feel that we have to do something. We have to do something uh, for uh, ethical reasons, because uh, since the 18th century, we know that all humans are equal. If we are all equal, uh, it has to be seen somewhere in the society. It has to be seen where the society needs to give the minimum for people to move in the society, to do things, not to be prisoner in an open space, but prisoner by lack of resources. And with digitalization, we are facing a second similar issue, internet access, a mastering of digital tools, we have to offer to all humans in our societies because they are humans, so they have to interact and uh, they have to have uh, the possibility to contribute to the creation of knowledge, diffusion of knowledge in the society. The society we have in Europe is based on knowledge and science, and we need a lot, a lot, a lot of people contributing to it, sharing it, practicing it, and uh, we cannot tolerate that people are excluded from this. So mastering of digital tools and access to electricity, we have to give and we can. So it's fantastic for me to see that these two trends, markets and public service or uh, human rights can be easily combined. We often see that actually the decarbonization of the energy sector and uh, electricity being one of them, as you as you said, 
has to be accompanied by the digitalization that will enable more things to happen, basically, for demand and production to match and uh, to overall create a system that is more agile. And these are like the backbone of a system that becomes less centralized than the one you you mentioned at the beginning where it had to be like a state control over energy production. Now we are moving to decentralized energy production. And then it becomes also at the level of governance, it becomes, it puts consumer and people first. An idea that is often unfolded as uh, the democratization of the energy sector. So what you say as digitalization, opening the door is really for the next step of the electricity uh, decarbonization, energy transition in general is is absolutely fascinating. But going back on your experience as energy economist and somebody who has worked at uh, really supporting changes in regulation, you have noticed that uh, certain regulatory environments were fostering innovation more than others, and some others were maybe a little bit too rigid somehow. So how do we balance? How do you strike a balance between regulation and experimentation? And uh, on the other hand, how do, let's say, regulatory frameworks can keep like space with the innovation and adaptation that is happening in the energy sector? Like there are some innovations that cannot take off because the regulatory framework is not there yet. So how with your experience as really an analyst, a professor, an economist with so many years of experience, how do you advise governments to find the right path? I would like to be able to advise governments. My gut feeling is that they do not care much. <laughs> the history of the electricity sector, electricity only, the history is that big companies are the counterparts of uh, public authorities. It is true that we have new operators entering the field and that in certain countries, for example, Denmark, they are the leading companies, but it is true only in a limited number of countries. In most countries, there are still the traditional players playing, but things are moving because it's possible to enter into generation with a small entity. This entity can be so small that local authorities can also enter. And non-profit-based entities, the typical example is cooperatives. Even in Paris, we have a solar cooperative. And this creates a new political landscape. On the top, in certain countries, individuals entered into it. Of course, they have to be wealthy, but if they are wealthy, they enter, and then they have to change the rules, to change the norms, to change the habits, etc., etc. On the top of that, we have a change of usage of electricity. The typical example is electrical car. Another example is becoming heat pump. Another will come from many places. A one being also well known is demand response. We have it in many European countries. We have new professionals, aggregators, telling 
if you are able to let me reduce your consumption at certain times, I can sell in the wholesale market your consumption reduction, and I will share with you the gains. So from many angles, in, on the generation side and on the consumption side, new players are coming and new size of players are possible. Therefore, the political landscape to take decisions is changing, but not always fast enough to change the equilibrium between the big players and the smaller players. However, in most of the European countries, the days of the big players are ending because uh, it's more and more understood that consumers have to be involved, even for, for basic obvious reasons. If consumers are involved, we may have less ticks, we may consume less when we have too high constraints. And we have seen in the gas crisis since fall 2021 that when consumers consume less, the costs of generation are lower and we have no crisis, which is we have no blackout, we have no curtainment. So the idea is on the table. It will grow. Which speed? I do not know, but it will grow. Indeed, uh, that's a really nice uh, way to jump to my next question, which is really about the biggest lessons that we could kind of draw from the past year's energy price crisis. As you said, it, it was mostly coming from gas, but it had a lot of repercussion on the electricity sector as well. And one of the interesting aspects is that it has kind of stimulated the European Commission to move forward in some new reforms of the energy markets, etc. So first of all, did the energy market design that we had, did it work? And how can it be really improved to be more resilient to future shocks? We have seen that while being in a very hard crisis, we didn't have significant blackouts, significant load curtailment, which is an incredible lesson because we have seen in many crises this type of horrible uh, chaos. Uh, of course, we have been lucky, but even if it's being lucky, uh, we have seen it. And uh, we have seen that it's possible to serve the vulnerable consumers and to get from the others more participation, more demand response, more involvement. We have seen that interconnection can be very good, even for the countries do not believing into markets like France. Many people in France are thinking that electricity market is a stupidity, and European electricity market a stupidity at square. But in December 2022, so a few months ago, 20% of the electricity consumed in France was coming from Germany. So Germany really helped France and really helped the French. So we can help each other, even if we have totally different policies. I know that Germans are closing nuclear, that many French still believe that nuclear will rescue the world. But despite our differences, we can do things together. Now, 
If we look at the gas crisis itself, I'm afraid that Germany has more responsibility to the past with the gas crisis. But also Germany made very significant efforts to consume less gas. So we are not going to spend our time accusing each other for the past. We have much better to look at the future. In the future, we are absolutely able to consume much less gas by consuming less electricity or by consuming less at peak, by using more electricity when it is efficient. For example, for heating, it is more efficient than gas. So heat pumps are reducing the amount of gas we need to warm the people. And the faster we will go with wind and solar equipment, the faster we will go quitting consumption of gas. So we really see that the past policy of the Europeans, which was to decarbonize more, to decarbonize more and more at each step, was going in the right direction. And if we accelerate it, we will accelerate our uh, independence or lower dependence to gas consumption and fossil consumption. We are not on a bad track. And on the top of all this, which are the fundamentals, many countries have been able to use small tricks, short-term measures to attenuate the shock. So we have seen also that it's not absolutely necessary to pressure the individual consumers to have a better collective behavior. And then we can build on this more to prepare the future. And um, if we combine all the different aspects I was uh, referring to, we are quasi sure that we can do something very good in the coming five years. Even if next winter we have a gas crisis, it can happen if the winter is really hard. We know already that facing it together in each country, facing it together across countries, we can resist, we can react. We know it. It's now of use for for everyone. Yeah, so it's it's really about uh, solidarity. We were able to set up some some common responses that were really bringing solidarity uh, at the forefront. And what, in my view, is is also absolutely fascinating is that for years EU policymakers were trying to put uh, energy efficiency on the forefront and trying to say how can we mobilize consumers, how can we mobilize normal people to reduce their energy consumption. And, and make some steps to acknowledge that energy is scarce, despite uh, the price signal that we used to have that we're not really in that direction. And many, many, let's say, more affluent people were never noticing the price of energy, really. And this price crisis has put electricity, this idea, the very idea of having a blackout on the top of people's minds and medias, probably most medias first, and then many people have finally, let's say, decided to act. And that is quite fascinating because it's, it seems one of the first time we see a proper action from the part of, of normal people on the energy side. 
And I think it's it's really, really, really fascinating. So there was until, let's say, until uh, last year, maybe a, a difficulty in communicating energy that high prices have somehow helped overcome. And uh, the adhesion uh, towards clean energy is, is, is much higher than it used to be. So, but still, there are some people tend to be attracted to shiny things, like technology is very shiny. And technical solutions to decarbonize the energy sector seems to be very appealing. Still, regulation has to be the backbone of everything. And it isn't sexy. So how would you like things to be? Or what kind of work do we still to, to make to enable people to and policymakers and, and medias to kind of understand that we have to work on the backbones? We live in mass democracies. But we do not live anymore into mass media democracies, like in the 70s and the 80s. We live in fragmented social media democracies. This makes many things more difficult. But roughly, the population is much more educated than 40, 50 years ago. And roughly, again, half of the citizens understand that climate change is very serious and will ask us to change many things, including the way we use butter, oil, the way we use meat or fish, and other things like this. And uh, these are giving conditions for uh, the bulk of our uh, European citizens to understand that the way they live can be questioned by themselves. They may ask themselves, do I do always the right things or may I change two or three of them? One example is also the waste. It took 10 to 15 years to have most of the humans putting apart a plastic, paper, glass when they prepare their waste. But now that they do, they find it normal. And many of them find this as something, uh, as a proof of good citizenship, like not smoking in a bus, not smoking in a, in a theater, in a classroom. So it will change. And uh, if you look at the younger generation, people being in their uh, 15 to 35, many of them are vegan, for example. In my generation, it was not existing. I have not a single case known. Now, 8 to 12% of them are vegan. So they, they directly understand that the way they eat has consequences. So it is coming, it will come, now, of course, as we live in fragmented societies, part of the societies are receiving very well technological reasoning and new technologies. Others are understanding better societal positioning and social consequences. Others understand more that they can gain some money and as they have budget constraints, they will free some money to do something else while being as happy as before. They will be as happy as before, but 
by changing two or three things, they will have more money to do things very enjoyable. So I think this will inevitably come. At what speed? I have no idea. What will be the social milieu uh, taking the lead? I have also no idea. But I'm seeing it everywhere. So uh, on this, I'm pretty confident that it's coming. The question is the speed. On the speed, we have only official positioning, laws, votes, investments, etc. Because they can guarantee the speed. But if we do not have the society on board, if you do not have individuals and groups of individuals on board, we will not make it. Because if we do not change behavior, we won't make it. But we cannot change behavior by order. We have to have people doing it voluntarily because they see the meaning or they gain something. That's really interesting because that's also like exactly what you've been doing with the Foreign School of Regulation as, as the director. You were also getting so much inspiration from the young people coming, like those cohorts of, of younger generation uh, coming to do their PhD uh, in Florence and trying to, uh, to unfold many, many things with you. And I love that you managed to get so much insight from how the society was evolving, at least for part of this generation. And this is very, very, very inspiring. Like Kofi Annan said that uh, if you are never too, too young to teach and too, too old to learn. And that's really a principle that I try to put on myself as well, having a toddler at home and trying to get her insight of the world and really and trying to ask myself some questions like, with very, very open and genuine ways. And I think that's it's one of the things that make your work resonate a lot with me and uh, with many policymakers because you are still, after all those years, you're still able to, to ask yourself and them some honest and deep questions. And you've worked on Europe, but you've also worked on, uh, and you are still working on the situation in India. And the situation is way more complex at many different levels. And I'm not sure we have any Indian listeners among our audience. But if we have, please tune in. It would be a really a pleasure to, to hear your insights as well. So how do you see uh, those regions differing in terms of their approach to energy policy and re economic regulation and the choices that they make? And really what lessons can be learned from each other's experience. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm really fascinated by India, by the use of the generation, by there are 1 billion. In Europe, we are only 400,000. So just those characteristics make things extremely different and complex. So what are your takes really on the evolution of the energy sector in India as well? As you have just said, I am frequently driven by the people I work with. I do not know why, but I know it is true. And I got Indians in my team, and they were outstanding humans. So I started to trust them, and I started to follow them. And then they told me that Europe has to work closely with India. And of course, it was a dream to be told that by Indians. So we started to do, and just before uh, the pandemic, in fall 2019, 
we created a division in New Delhi. And incredible, this division started immediately to work with officials. Uh, the CEO of a, of a big utility, the chairman of the Re Federal Regulatory Commission, the CEO of the advisory group of the prime minister, incredible. And then I started to learn about Indian official thinking. But fortunately, this division in India worked also and started to do things and uh, had more and more members, more and more advisors. And I spent one month in India in March to discover that old India is still there. About two-thirds of the Indians are way too poor to change anything into their lives. And of course, it remembers me, my grand-grandma, which was so poor. She was just able to live. Even she had no modern energy, only wood that she collected into the, the forest. And then only one-third of Indians are uh, in what we can call modern world. But only half of them can move because uh, half of them are in, in the modern world, but they're just able to be. So moving in India can be reduced to 200 million. What can they do? Because they have one billion of other people with them. And that's what I understood in March, that uh, the European plans we have are reasonable and even progressive for Europe, but are not reasonable and progressive for India because they are not taking into account that in a country, two-thirds of the population is too poor to do anything, and half of the population being modern, only half is able to move. How can we push an energy transition where investment and new tech are core? You have to invest, India would have to invest three to five times more in energy to enter this revolution. But where will this investment come? From the Indians? How could they? From foreigners? How could foreigners to put such amount of money into India? So I would say that for me, since March, I, we are only in April, I do not know what India will do. But I know that India has to create an Indian way that I cannot define. I cannot define what it will be. But I understand it will be an Indian way. One part of it can have a Chinese flavor if India, like China, can create a modern economy growing fast enough to eliminate poverty. What the Chinese did, huh? they eliminated Poverty. So if you eliminate poverty, the country can move at a much bolder pace. But it's not the case yet in India. So if poverty is not eliminated, the country cannot turn very fast. If poverty is eliminated, how much time, how much time it takes? But Chinese are showing that uh, in 30 years you can do. But can this be replicated in India? No idea. If the fragmentation of the world offering to India a very favorable window of opportunity with the Western world, I do not know, I do not do. There are questions too big for me. But my dream is this. 
to have a small China in India, to have poverty disappearing in the coming 30 years, then we will be in 55, and then after 55, uh, India can do enormous things, and in 55, Europe will not be a big player in the world, while India can be the big players changing the Earth's trajectory. That's the dream I have. And as you know, India will be, is the big, biggest country in the world, but will be bigger and bigger while China is starting to reduce its size. No, that's super fascinating. And uh, seeing these kind of macro trends and how they can really shape the world of tomorrow is, is also something that I personally find amazing and uh, kind of incredible somehow. And uh, I have to acknowledge that we European may not have this, the answer to everything because we are an old continent. We already have a lot of things and innovation may not come from us anymore. We can export best practice somehow. But uh, but really, uh, every continent have to invent their own definition of the of the energy transition and uh, have to find their own way to to overcome uh, extreme poverty and and make the energy transition really an opportunity to build a, a better world, more ethic and uh, equal world somehow. But uh, as we are reaching to the end of this recording, Jean-Michel, could you tell me when you're really reflecting on your career in energy economics regulation? What would you like your own legacy to be? Like, what contributions do you feel you have made that have had the most lasting impact on the electricity sector? Very funny, very funny. What I really uh, dream of is that nobody will have to remember me because everything I think will become commonplace, will become common knowledge. This I, I am really dreaming of. If not... What I am very proud of is the following. I am really in economics coming from thinking, not doing maths, not doing modeling, but thinking. And I have been transformed by North American creating institutional economics. They are saying uh, the state, the parliament is not as important as the market, but not far from the market. So if you want to understand things, you have to understand not only the market, but also the law, the state, the parliament, many other things, and also culture, which is what humans have incorporated and are able to activate, to act, to react, to dream, to, to, to do new things. This is institutional economics. It does not work if you do not interact with the lawyers. It does not work if you do not interact with the engineers. It does not work if you do not interact with the civil servants. And at Front School, we call it co-creation of knowledge. We do not believe now that knowledge is created in libraries. Knowledge is created into the field by many, many different practitioners. And one of these practitioners is specializing into codifying knowledge. Most of the time, it is an academic, but not necessarily. It can be an old practitioner uh, changing his or her style. So this, I would like to become uh, more acknowledged and more respected. When young people, like the young people at France School, are starting their career, 
they face very old, very rigid definition of knowledge creation and knowledge capabilities. It's a bit stupid because they are still judged as if we were producing papers to put papers into libraries. It's not our job. Our job is also to be a practitioner, to be a doctor into the field. So creativity relevance should be a criteria used into young people's careers. It's not the case. It's not frequently the case, and it's an error. This, this has to be changed. Even at EUI, my president was saying, we have to create professors of practice. Excellent definition, but he's still unable to create it since many years. Huh? But we should have professors of practice, and they can be uh, PhD students entering with it, showing what they're having, uh, being able to produce or to elucidate as a mysterious difficulties. This, I think, it's, it's extremely important. But I have nothing against people uh, living in libraries. But we have to create another type of professor or another type of academic. I love that. It's really a very nice way to wrap things up because that's also exactly the purpose of energetic, to have people with very different backgrounds and field of expertise. Having this conversation about the future of the energy sector and the climate transition in general and what we can make, and it has to come from many, many different perspectives. And there is really no one size fits all. There is no one single solution that works. It has to be a combination of everything. And and really, I feel that my own mission in life is to bridge some gaps among the various organization people and, and parties that all have their bits of the answers. So I forgot one thing very important for me. Companies should not be seen as in the radical European tradition as enemies, money-making only machines. Companies are collective units of knowledge, collective units of practice. So we should acknowledge that companies are creating knowledge. And in the society, we need to use this knowledge. Of course, we have to combine with other knowledge because we know that this knowledge is arranged in a certain way. But we should not attack companies. We should find ways of working with them. So we need lawyers, engineers, civil servants, company managers. If we put them together with some academics, we will have a, a better uh, jam or a better melting pot. Yeah, I would add, like to add to that uh, NGOs and really civil society as well. And, and, and people, and people, their, their lived experience is so, is so important. And uh, thank you so much, Jean-Michel. It's been a pleasure to have you here with me uh, on Energetic. And so what are the next steps for you? I am driven by uh, human communities. I cannot master everything. It's impossible. Thank you so much, Jean-Michel. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. 
Until next time. 